We'd like to give a special thanks to Astro Agency, the executive producers of Space and 60. They provide strategic marketing support exclusively for the space sector. Strategic because their team have all the vast experience working within space companies or setting them up. So they specialize in getting technical messaging and brand positioning just right, as well as having the industry connections to organize podcasts just like this one and their space bar webinars, which we'd highly recommend for new space networking. Check Astro Agency out on social media. They're in all the usual places. And welcome back to another episode of Space in 60. Clint Grauman and Andrew Plipchuk. And this week we're actually missing uh, Booster. We're missing Chad. Oh, I miss Chad. I wish he was here. He's going to miss a good one. We're going to, we're going to, we've got an exciting guest lined up, but you know, it's been a pretty good week in, in space news. We saw a module, one of the original modules undock from ISS and, and it'll be decommissioned here, I guess, this week. So that was kind of interesting. And then a lot of photos from the space station and, and Earth observation in general on on a lot of the, at least forest fires happening here in North America. I haven't been tracking forest fires around the rest of the world, but definitely it smells like a bit of a campfire here east of the Rockies in Canada. Yeah, I've seen a lot of um, fires, I think, in Russia as well. So similar terrain, similar environment as, as what you all in Canada are experiencing. But yeah, hey, I mean, it these things are are bad but you know i think we're starting to see a lot of development in how we are able to combat these things with earth observation from space and being able to make decisions based on information from a higher altitude but a lot going on there i think since the last time we recorded a session blue origin has launched jeff bezos and wally funk and his brother and what was the kid's name from Oh, geez. Damon was his last. Yeah, slipping my mind. Yeah, but I mean, so many things have has, have happened. And I've got to put in a plug for my alma mater at Oklahoma State sending Wally Funk to space with Jeff Bezos. Wally Funk, 82 years old, graduate of Oklahoma State University, where I call home, or at least did in my early days. Long, long time ago. It was Oklahoma A&M back in those days. Oh, wow. Agriculture and mechanics, sending people to space. Pretty cool. Very, very cool. But yeah, I just it's great to see the commercialization and excitement accelerate. And we also saw this last week, ESA Aerospace from Germany got an additional 75 million in funding. I think that puts them up to what, Andrew? That's uh, what, 140, 130, somewhere mid-100? Mid 165, 165 million. So the second round or second tranche of their Series B. And they're what we think they're going to be the first European commercial launch company. Other than Ariana Space. Yeah, uh, I mean, a new, I mean, new space launch company is what I'm thinking. Yeah, new space. I mean, Ariana's government-backed, government-subsidized. Been around but, for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not taken away from their hard work, but they're one of the new space generation, right? Yep. Did you see who uh, some of their backers were? No, I didn't. I wasn't uh, tracking. Porsche. Excellent. Yes. Porsche put some serious money into helping ESA Aerospace. 
Porsche SE. And I, th- I think that's great. That rocket's going to go fast. It's going to be good looking too. Yep. Good looking rocket. Uh, I've seen some of the mock-ups they've gotten. It's a, uh, it's slick. And I like what, what ease is doing They're They're working on putting up some, I guess, specialized launches or exact orbits. And I'm really looking forward to learning more about them. And hopefully we'll get uh, Daniel Metzler on the show one day from Easy Aerospace. I think that would be incredible. Agreed. I think it would be fantastic. So what's been going on up in uh, your neck of the woods in Canada, eh? Oat and boat. Um, besides living in a campfire, which is uh, all right, I guess, if you like camping, just a whole lot of diaper changing here in the house. And just trying to think here what's happened in july it's just been gorgeous weather otherwise yeah summer's gone by fast it is going by fast and and when summer is only you know a couple months of the year here not not all 12 uh like those in florida you got to jump on it and enjoy it while it's lasts yeah I, i have to say it's pretty great living in florida uh summer all year long we do have a couple of weeks in the winter around january where you have to wear long pants but other than that it's pretty great you really should funny. come down sometime. Yeah, we'll we'll get there. Uh, we opened our border to uh, you American folks, but you know Biden just slammed the door in our face. We can't come down there. Yeah, probably for the better. If you guys don't like our coffee and donuts, that's that's your choice. But today we have Dan Klopp from ILC Dover, maker of spacesuits. Space yep, I can't wait to talk to him today and get to geek out a little bit on some of the technology for spacesuits and you know you see all these really cool looking spacesuits and science fiction films and then today we see the spacesuits from virgin and from spacex and you know we have the memory of these really clunky large spacesuits from the apollo missions and the evas on the space shuttle i wonder where they're going with that yeah it'll be interesting to see or hear about the some of the history there and and how we got to where we are and Definitely, does science fiction live up to the reality? We'll see. So, welcome to Space and 60, Dan Klopp. Welcome, Dan Klopp from ILC Dover. Thank you, Clint. Happy to be here. So, Dan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, A little bit about me. I have a sort of strange educational background. I have uh, undergraduate degrees in physics, chemistry, and math, and then I took a bit of a career detour after working for a while and went and got a MBA with a concentration in marketing. So I've spent my career in high-tech marketing for a variety of companies, mostly on sort of the hardware high-tech side, very little on the software or services side of high-tech. It was a, uh, a long and interesting journey to get the ILC Dover. Yeah, it sounds like it. I do see that you have quite a few books on your shelf behind you. Yes. Everyone's always asking me if my bookshelf is real. Is your bookshelf real? My bookshelf is real. That is not simulated. Along the bottom row back right there are a whole series of marketing textbooks. So that's sort of one of my passions. And then above that, in that row, are some space textbooks that are not textbooks, but things that were written, actually that one and that one were written by uh, by an ILC Dover employee talking about sort of the journey that ILC Dover had and the role we had in human space exploration. Very, very cool. Now, Clint, notice how his books are a little bit, you know, staggered, not perfectly neat and tidy. That's what makes it look real. <laughs> well, my wife is German, so everything in my bookshelf, alles in Ordnung. <laughs> 
everything stays in order. She makes sure of it, especially if I'm going to be on this podcast. But looks like you're quite the reader, for sure. Yeah, for sure. In addition to uh, being a student of marketing, I've also, uh, at a couple of different times in my career, been an adjunct professor of marketing. So I've taught marketing seminars. I think one of those books back there, I have about five different editions of it. Um, as I've used it uh, both as a student and then as a uh, as an adjunct professor. You read many of the the space uh, themed books, like from Andy Weir with The Martian and Artemis. Uh, are you a fan of those? No, not really. What I've found is that with this uh, sort of late career change into the uh, space industry, I find that as I learn a lot about the details of the space industry, it ruins me for science fiction in particular. Once you learn sort of the realities and uh, what actually goes on, and then you watch movies or read books and you realize how much the author got wrong, I find it distracting from the story. I used to enjoy science fiction, but I find I have to lay off it now because I spend too much of my time rather than focusing on the story, I focus on the details that sort of the scientific and engineering details that the author just missed or got wrong. I think that's a perfect segue, Dan. I have to ask, have you been watching For All Mankind on Apple TV? No, I have not. Uh, okay, because the last episode, was it, Clint? They used duct, duct tape? tape to make spacesuits. And, <laughs> I, you know, I was like, oh, that seems very Canadian. We love duct tape up here in Canada, but I don't think duct tape spacesuits will fly on the moon. But as I said, segue, Dan, tell us about what you're doing now. I think you're working with spacesuits or you guys are designing spacesuits or, or tell us a little bit about, about that. Yeah, that's correct. So ILC Dover has a long, long history of protecting humans in space. We, uh, as I understand the company history, and uh, I'm old, but I'm not this old, all the way back to the Mercury era, the company bid on the spacesuits for the, the original Mercury 7 astronauts. Did not win that contract. That was won by uh, B.F. Goodrich, the tire and rubber company. And then, uh, as I understand the history, we bid again on the Gemini program, did not win that contract, and then bid again. Um, you got to give a lot of uh, credit to persistency on the company's uh, behalf, the employees back then. But the third time was a charm because we bid on the Apollo contract and won that contract. So we built the spacesuits that were used by Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to take those famous first steps on the moon. And we've essentially built every EVA spacesuit for NASA since then, right through the suits that are being used today on the International Space Station for spacewalks. And we're currently working on the next generation of lunar lander suits with an eye towards uh, design considerations for using those suits someday on Mars as well. Did I see a picture of you with Charlie Duke with one of your spacesuits? Do I, am I remembering that right? Yes, you are remembering that right. Last week was a, an event called Space Fest in Tucson, Arizona, that I attended on behalf of ILC Dover. And we had uh, several generations of our spacesuits on display there in our booth there and managed to get uh, quite a few of the retired astronauts uh, that were in attendance to come to our booths. And uh, we even had a group shot that, uh, um, that you can find on LinkedIn. That's probably the one that I saw. Yeah. Yeah. That is pretty cool. Somehow, Clint, we got we got to figure out something like that as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get a chance to spend much time with with Charlie Duke and, and the other astronauts or was it more of just a photo op? No, I got time to spend with quite a few of the astronauts. We have recently, well, recently, more than a year ago now, hired retired astronaut Nicole Stott to be a, sort of an advisor to us. So it was a, an interesting 
meeting that Nicole and I had because for the past more than a year now, we've been having weekly Zoom or Microsoft Teams calls. We know each other quite well, but uh, last week at Space Fest was the first time we had met face-to-face. That was a unique opportunity. One of the other highlights for me personally, being a technology and a marketing person, I'm always interested in sort of the comparison between different spacesuits. And one of the highlights of the week last week was uh, speaking with Dan Birch, retired NASA astronaut, who has been on spacewalks in both the Russian Orlan suit and our EMU suit. And it was very informative to uh, hear him compare and contrast the, the two spacesuits and how they behave during a spacewalk. Is there anything you can share? Well, so some of this, he may have been uh, just making me feel good because of who I, who I work for. But according to Dan, the mobility and dexterity offered by the ILC-developed EMU suit is just so much superior to the Russian Orlan suit. In terms of uh, sizes available, uh, Dan's not a particularly large human being, and but yet the upper torso of the Russian suit only comes in one size. So he was uh, more or less banging around inside because the suits are pressurized. So you're kind of, you know, even if it's not a, a good fit for you, the pressure inside the suit maintains sort of this bubble around you. But what he said he found himself doing was more or less banging around inside the suit. Because although you don't have weight, you're in a zero-G environment during a spacewalk in low Earth orbit, you do have mass. So with mass comes momentum. And so the astronaut, uh, once they get moving by translating themselves along the handrails on the outside of the International Space Station, when they stop at their particular workstation, they can bang inside the suit. The suit will stop before the astronaut stops if the suit doesn't fit very well. Well, it's all about space budgets, right? I mean, you know, save money where you can, I guess. So one size fits all. One time, Andrew was telling me about the budgets that the U.S. had back in the, the early days of space. And it was, it was an interesting concept on how you approach these things that we spent millions and millions of dollars developing an ink pen that would ride upside down and is pressurized in space. And the Russians took a pencil. Right. <laughs> Famous story there. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that story before. And, you know, it's it's true. It's it's a it's, different It's something and... that's just not mentioned in the U.S. The, the, those <laughs> words are just not uttered. But everywhere else around the U.S., we all know that story. Right. Well, another big difference that Dan pointed out in the difference between the suits is in the glove itself. My engineers tell me that if you can design a spacesuit glove, you can design an entire spacesuit. That's the, the trickiest part of a spacesuit to design. And currently, I think we have 64 different sizes of gloves that we make. That just recently changed. The way that NASA and and us approach that is if a new astronaut is coming into the program, they try on the sizes of gloves. If they can't find a size that fits them very well, then we will make a a different size. And uh, um, recently, we made a 64th size. So uh, a few months ago, we were only at 63 sizes, but a, uh, a new astronaut, Jasmine, came into the program. She happens to have very unusually long, skinny fingers, and none of our existing sizes worked. So we made her a new size glove. Up here in Canada, we've got technology for that because we've got perfect fitting hockey skates for everybody, every age, <laughs> come up on this side of the border and, and we'll share some of our secrets. There you go. But, you know, I'm thinking about the process of trying on, you know, astronauts coming in and and trying on the suits. And I was thinking about when we were taking our kids shopping for school clothes and um, 
only one suit in the changing room at a time, right? <laughs> I, I'm not privy to how they do the, uh, that's between NASA and their astronauts and how they do their sizing. All joking aside, it is uh, an interesting process. One of the stories that, that I've been following, Dan, on social media, I have seen several threads where they were talking about how we need to get better at making spacesuits fit women versus men, because historically they were much more aligned to, to men. Is that some of the things that Nicole Stott's helping you with is advising you on those pieces or what's happening there? Absolutely. And again, back to uh, sort of the, the difference is between generations of spacesuits. One of the things that we're working towards in the next generation of lunar landing suits and indeed the next generation of zero-G spacewalk suits is the ability to easily resize the suit for a whole variety of body types. Right now, the suits that are currently used on the International Space Station, we have three different sizes of upper torso, a small, medium, large, various sizes of arms, and all these clipped together in a modular fashion. And as I mentioned a while ago, 64 different sizes of the gloves now, but we're limited right now. And that was a, a design requirement that NASA put on us back at the beginning of the space shuttle era, which today's suits are an evolution of those suits, that the upper torso be very, very strong. One of the design requirements was that the astronaut, and again, this was early in the space shuttle era when they were using that cargo bay of the space shuttle to take a lot of satellites, and then uh, later in the program, all the components of the International Space Station up into orbit. One of the requirements was that the astronaut could reach out and with their hand, their gloved hand, stop a spinning satellite that maybe had gotten out of control out of that. So we had to build a lot of rigidity and strength into the upper torso of those suits. And that has while it provided a safety factor if the astronaut ever did have to reach out and, and stop a, uh, a spinning satellite or a spinning uh, object uh, coming out of the cargo bay that had gotten out of control, it provided that safety. But it also, the downside of that design requirement is that it limits the resizability and the, the mobility of that upper torso. So a lot of the astronauts complain about, particularly at the shoulder joint, that they can get sort of a, a stress injury in their shoulders, particularly the female astronauts. Uh, a few months ago, I was speaking with uh, Anne McLean, and she was complaining a little bit about that her shoulders got quite a workout in the spacesuit. Now you're just dropping names. Sorry, That's I'm not sorry. even fair. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do admit I have a cool job. I get to hang out with some incredibly cool people. How did you end up working in, in such a cool job? Did you stumble into it? Did you seek it out? I stumbled into it, pure luck and happenstance. So I'll reveal my age here for people that can do the quick math. I was 13 years old when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin took those famous first steps on the moon. And of course, uh, growing up prior to that, all the way through elementary school, we all used to gather around the, the one black and white television set that we might've had in our school to watch the Mercury and Gemini launches. Um, so every, every kid grew up back in my era wanting to be an astronaut or some way associated with the space industry. Here I am late in my career, just pure happenstance, stumbled into the job at ILC Dover. One of the reasons that ILC Dover recruited me was that I do have this combination of a technical background and a marketing background. And now that space is becoming more commercial, we have a need for some marketing expertise in the organization. 
I mean, when you think about our legacy for the past 50 years, we've essentially had one customer and that's NASA. And when you have one customer, you don't really have a big need and they know who you are and you know who they are. You don't have a big need for marketing. So, but uh, that's all changing now with the, the evolving world. And now we have multiple companies um, and multiple countries competing for a, a place in, uh, in the space exploration game. So that was uh, sort of the genesis of my combination of a, of a highly technical background combined with a, uh, a marketing background that, uh, um, again, pure luck, circumstance, you know, what can I say? It's, uh, it's a dream job that, uh, that I found late in my career. So I, I think there's a question that Andrew's dying to ask. I'm wondering if I should give him a chance to ask it. I think it's the one that's on both of our minds. The question is, do you ever wait till everyone leaves the office and you go walk around in a spacesuit? <laughs> um, the answer to that is no, because actually spacesuits are a little bit on the dangerous side. When we put a uh, test technician in one of the spacesuits, we have a crew of at least three people around that are monitoring the life support system because they remember they're airtight. <laughs> so you have to have the, the whole life support system to maintain the air circulation. Otherwise, you'll eventually suffocate breathing your own, uh, <laughs> your own exhaust fumes, so to speak. So everyone that knows anything about spacesuits just stopped listening to this podcast because clearly Clint doesn't know anything about spacesuits. <laughs> That's it. Sounds like a, a perfect solution to my diaper changing problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, speaking of diapers, that's uh, that's always a question that uh, that everybody that everybody asks about spacesuits. Um, and uh, great segue, actually, uh, probably unintentional, but uh, great segue. So I'll do some name dropping again. Uh, a few months ago, Nicole and I were doing a uh, live webinar about spacesuits. And we gave a uh, uh, sort of about a 15, 20 minute presentation and then opened it up to questions because it was a live webinar. And of course, the inevitable question came up of during a six or seven hour long spacewalk, what do the astronauts do if they need to take care of business? And uh, I looked at Nicole and said, do you want to take that one or, or should I? <laughs> and Nicole, being who she is, uh, said, I'll take that. She said, we wear a diaper. <laughs> The answer is Huggies or Pampers. The answer is just let it go. <laughs> well, the, the answer for those of us that are familiar with uh, late night television advertising is it depends. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I couldn't resist. No, that's great. That's great. Um, I actually wasn't thinking of that one, but um, you know, I, I imagine for astronauts who who you get to meet on a frequent basis you actually have to get your game face on and get ready for the question of what's it like up there and how do you go to the bathroom? I'm sure that that's just the, the question they have to deal with on an ongoing basis. Yes. Yeah. Nonstop. But I'm going to ask if I ever get the chance, I'm going to ask. <laughs> I heard that uh, Nicole has a book coming out or is it already out? Uh, it's coming out. You can pre-order it on Amazon. So I'll do a little shameless plug for, uh, for Nicole there, um, but it's coming out this fall. That'd be great. I can't wait to read it. Yes. And me as well. Have you ever wondered how to get your company's latest news in front of a global space sector audience? Then get in touch with Room Space Journal. With a large digital and print audience focusing on space, astronautics, science, and the latest news and developments from the sector, Room Space Journal is a direct route to increasing brand awareness in space. 
For the latest space news and to download a media pack, visit the website at room.eu.com. So where are things going in the world of spacesuits? I mean, what what's changing from where we were in the days of EVAs coming from the space shuttle missions to where we are today as we're thinking about you know, extended time um, or an ever-present time in space. And now we're going to start putting people on the moon, hopefully through the Artemis program, where we're going to have to be there for extended periods of time. You know, and if people are going up and staying there, you've got the the question of, you know, dust on the, the spacesuits, and you're not bringing them home to clean them. They're going to have to be up there. And I imagine cleaning dust off in space isn't easy. So, I mean, you don't have to go through that piece, but I'm just thinking where are things going with the way we're changing our approach to space today? So that's an excellent segue into some other areas that we're investigating as we're building prototypes of uh, the next generation of lunar landing suits. First of all, let me talk a little bit about, before I get into the dust issue, let me talk about the difference between the Apollo era suits that we built 50 years ago and the EMU suits that we're building today and then moving on to the next generation of suits that we're building. In the Apollo era, the capsules were small enough and the the rockets weren't heavy lift enough to accommodate a change of outfits. So there was one suit that served two or three purposes, which today is divided into different types of spacesuits. So back in the Apollo era, there was one suit that served as a launch entry suit. So you took the life support backpack off of that suit and that was used for launch and re-entry then that same pressure garment was used for launch and re-entry. Obviously, the life support backpack needed to be removed so that they could sit in the, the seats as they were launching and then at the end of the mission, re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. But then during the lunar excursions, those suits had to, to accommodate putting that, that life support backpack on as they did their, their lunar excursions. And then on Apollo 15, 16, and 17, the astronauts actually did a deep space spacewalk. Those are the only three deep space spacewalks that have ever been done. And we're coming up actually next Thursday is the 50th anniversary of the very first of those taken by astronaut Al Warden. And they did in the transit back from the moon to earth, they did a spacewalk to retrieve a film canister from the outside of the lunar lander module before they jettisoned that off when they uh, re-entered the earth's atmosphere. Those three spacewalks were done as with what we would term tethered life support. So they didn't have the life support backpack on, but much like the Gemini era spacewalks, the life support was done through hoses that came from a life support system that was in the space vehicle. So that was that generation of spacesuit. And those were each custom tailored to each astronaut. So it was more or less a one-piece suit. I mean, the helmet obviously came off, the gloves came off, but the the rest of the spacesuit was pretty much a one-piece garment. Then evolving into the, the space shuttle era, the current EMU suit, those suits are designed, as I mentioned, to have a very rigid, strong upper torso for the reasons I described before. But the lower torso on those suits offers very little mobility, and there's not a hard sole shoe in those spacesuits. So they were never designed to walk on anything. So it's interesting terminology that we use. We call these space walks, but uh, I think they're better termed space floats because your lower torso does no work. All the work is done by your hands and your arms, your upper torso, as they're translating around on those handrails on the outside of the International Space Station. 
So that's today's generation. And then looking toward the future, we're trying to design a suit that could be used either as a zero-G suit, what we call a zero-G suit, where it has very little mobility in the lower torso because it's not needed for a spacewalk in a zero-G environment, or substitute in a more highly mobile lower torso with hard-soled boots that could be used for lunar and, as I say, someday Martian exploration. So those are design considerations we're looking for in the future, as well as this resizability that I was talking about, where we can easily relocate the shoulder bearing to accommodate with two sizes of upper torso, we have a design that will accommodate 99% of humanity in terms of the size, which is uh, roughly from less than a five foot tall person up to about a six foot four tall person. So a lot of resizability to the point earlier about fitting female astronauts and being more inclusive to a lot of body sizes that will be going to space in the, in the coming years. But now on to the dust issue, the dust mitigation issue. We obviously have experience with that going all the way back to the Apollo era. And that was something that neither us nor NASA foresaw as a big problem, but turned out to be a big problem in the, uh, in the Apollo missions. So one of the designs that we're looking at today is a rear entry suit. It's called a suit port design, where the suits obviously would be in the, the, the lunar lander when it first arrived. But then after the first lunar excursion, the suits would remain outside the lunar lander for the remainder of the time that suit was useful. And there were a rear entry design. So at the end of a lunar excursion, the astronaut would back up to uh, the suit port that NASA is talking about designing and climb out of the rear of the suit. And then the suit itself would stay outside the spacecraft for the rest of its useful life. So the dust issue, any dust that's sticking to that spacesuit would remain outside the lunar lander. And then for you know, on the next excursion, the astronaut would climb in again through the suit port, through the back of the suit, into the spacesuit, clip on the life support backpack, and go off on their walkabout. That's one strategy. We're looking at some other strategies, including sort of electrostatic sorts of strategies. We're investigating a lot of different ways to deal with that issue. I was going to say, that's pretty interesting and genius ways to, to look at the solution. You know, I was just thinking, can't you partner with Swiffer or something just to dust off the dust? But uh, no, electrostatic was one of the things I was thinking about as, as you were talking about it. Just, you know, as a kid, you know, rubbing up on different materials and watching your hair go and detract the dust. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. You know, lunar dust is incredibly sticky from sort of a, its, its ability to grab onto fabrics and not fall off. So the whole Swiffer thing wouldn't really work. One of the things that we take for granted here on Earth is that we have air and we have water. <laughs> and neither of those exist on the moon. And so lunar dust, because uh, it's not subject to air and water, doesn't have that erosion effect. So it doesn't get rounded corners. And like if you think about the dirt here in, uh, on Earth, it's uh, constantly being tumbled about by wind. It's constantly being rained on or, uh, you know, it's subject to uh, tumbling down a river. And so it rounds the edges of those pieces of dirt and dust off, whereas on the lunar surface, they have very sharp edges. So they just that those sharp edges are like barbs on like when you're uh, walking through a, a field with those kind of plants uh, that, uh, that stick to your, uh, your clothing. It's like that, where it just embeds itself in the fabric and it's very difficult to get out. I will never be able to watch a science fiction movie the same again. 
this really, I think it speaks to where the new space industry is, is headed today. We see, you know, where you mentioned that there in the past on a country level basis, there was basically one customer. And as we start to see the, the market evolve and we're seeing groups like Blue Origin and SpaceX start to send people to space along with, with Virgin, we're going to have to start considering that spacesuits are going to be needed at a commercial level. I mean, how do you see that that evolving compared to the government-sponsored enterprises? That is exactly where we're headed with our spacesuit uh, development effort is towards commercial spacesuits. So unlike in the past when the development dollars were actually tax, the U.S. taxpayer dollars that were being granted to ILC Dover to do the development, in today's world, we're spending our own money as a private corporation on development so that we then own all the rights and intellectual property to these new generation of spacesuits. And therefore, we're able to sell them uh, sort of like any commercial product on the open market. So we are in in talks with Blue Origin, with uh, Sierra Space. We've had talks in the past with uh, Virgin Galactic. And uh, of course, SpaceX, they're, they're doing, currently they're doing their own launch entry suits, but we are speaking with them about EVA spacesuits. So I mentioned there were different types of spacesuits back in the Apollo era. There was one suit that sort of was a launch entry suit and an EVA suit. And today those are more specialized. And we're developing both types. We're developing launch entry suits for the commercial market, as well as EVA suits for the commercial market. Wow, that's great. And you know, I, I've thought about that and how differently our suits might need to be for, for Mars versus the moon. You've got a whole set of different conditions for, for Mars versus the moon. Are you already in works developing those as well, or is that still in concept? Still pretty much in concept, although our engineers are keeping those design considerations in mind as they're doing the, the suits that, uh, that we believe will be used on the Artemis missions. Those contracts haven't been awarded yet, so I can't say they, that we will have the Artemis suits, but certainly we have the, the legacy and uh, history of uh, being able to uh, do this successfully that uh, gives us a leg up on any other country. Really, there's only an interesting fact that maybe not many people know is that there's really only two companies in the world that have designed EVA spacesuits that have actually been used in space over the past 50 years, and that's ILC Dover, and it's a company called NPP Zvezda, a uh, Russian company that designs the uh, Orlan suits used predominantly by the cosmonauts. It's interesting that it's been such a small industry thus far. I'm curious, you know, I would assume the Chinese are also using the Russian-made suits as well. Do you know? Yeah, so the Chinese just did their first uh, tandem spacewalk, to two astronauts on a spacewalk a few weeks ago. And from what we understand... One of the suits was a, uh, a Russian Orlan suit purchased from Russia, and the other one was sort of a reverse-engineered oh, no. homemade version of the, of the Russian Orlan suit. Oh, boy. Wow. That's, so don't want to get a middle of yeah. that intellectual property. Yeah, under, uh, under license. Yeah, let, discussion between uh, Russia and China. It was China. under license. Yeah, let's, let's go with that. I'm looking forward to the day where... Maybe it won't be quite go to the shopping mall and pick your suit, pick your colors. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to a place where space, space tourism allows us to exactly that. Maybe at SpaceX, pick your suit, pick your color and have that opportunity to, to do a spacewalk ourselves. 
interesting that you would uh, bring that up because the the prototype work that we've done on our launch entry suit, we've done those in quite a few different colors. The original prototype we did was uh, an all black outer layer, but we recently have done a blue and a white, green, and gray version. My daughter is an unbelievable space enthusiast as well, and she desperately wants a suit in pink. Can <laughs> <Ooh>. you help? <laughs> <laughs> well, we have done um, not real space suits, but we've done by the same manufacturing team. We've done display suits, including one for Nicole's uh, Space for Art Foundation, uh, actually several for that, um, that were a patchwork of different pieces of material that were uh, done by various pediatric cancer patients. And then we are, uh, our manufacturing team sewed all that together uh, using the same patterns that we use for the outer layer of the, the current EMU suit. It looks real. It's just, you wouldn't want to get in it and uh, go through an airlock and uh, <laughs> out into the, the harsh environment of space. This is an incredible way to think about how we're approaching space and approaching it from historically the the viewpoint of one customer and we're watching this just whole blossom into an industry that is moving into commercial and moving into lots of other of other aspects and i'm you know i was thrilled to to get the opportunity to to have you on the show and you've been very generous with your time but we are at the end of our our time frame here um, i do want to give andrew another chance to ask his question. He's always got the best questions of any of us. So I'm putting him on the spot. The next generation of spacesuit must have mobility to eat a donut. <laughs> that will be easily accommodated with the next generation of spacesuit. As I mentioned before, without the requirement of the extremely strong upper torso, uh, we can design in and we are designing in much, much more mobility in the upper torso. So it'll be very easy to uh, uh, to pick up a donut. And uh, of course you've got uh, um, the helmet issue. So you'll need to be inside the spacecraft uh, to, to be able to remove the helmet to put the, actually get the donut to your mouth. But well, one step at a time, one step at a time. Maybe we should design some sort of donut holder inside the, the chest cavity of the spacesuit so that it could bring a donut up to your mouth robotically. Yeah, no, I like it. <laughs> Folks from Tim Hortons, that that's my plug for a lifetime supply of double doubles and donuts, and and the folks here on the line as well. Who's this Tim Hortons you're speaking? Oh, about? he's the most famous coffee shop and hockey player in Canada. Yeah, you Canadians and your Tim Hortons. I know, I know. We can't live without it. It's it's in our blood, in our DNA. Sort of a Canadian version of Starbucks. <laughs> so Dan, because you appear to be such a book enthusiast as I am, I, I don't see a single book behind Andrew. I'm not sure what he does up in Canada, but change diapers. Is there a single book that you could recommend to anyone that was listening? What's your what's your favorite book on space or your favorite book on the subject matter? Anything that you could recommend to anyone? So my favorite book on space suits is this book called Lunar Outfitters, Making the Apollo Spacesuit by Bill Airy. Bill is a retired ILC Dover employee and spent a lot of time, since he's recently retired, he goes way back in our history, almost back to the Apollo era, but he knew most of the engineers uh, and tracked them down for uh, interviews for that book. So it's, uh, it's a great history of, uh, of ILC Dover's legacy in the space industry. Excellent. I'll have to read it. 
And if we, if you get a chance, remind us about Nicole's book when it comes out. And if she would ever like to come on the show, she would have a standing invitation to come on and tell us about her book. We would love that. But it's been truly a pleasure having you on here today, Dan. And if there's any other time you'd like to join the show again, just drop by and we'd be glad to have you. I'd certainly uh, be willing to join anytime. Thanks, Dan. That was excellent. That was truly something unique. That was my pleasure. All right. Thanks, Dan. We'll see you around the industry. That was a great show with Dan. Absolutely just so interesting to learn about spacesuits. Interesting to, to hear where they've come from. I mean, to be able to stop a spinning out of control satellite with one hand, I mean, that's like Superman. Yep. And, you know, one of the things that, that I enjoyed was when he was talking about the rear entry spacesuits. So on the spacesuits that stay on the outside of the spacecraft, and then you get into the suit or back into them from behind. I was imagining Bo and Luke Duke from the Dukes and Hazard. <laughs> jumping, Dukes and Hazard. Jumping into jumping the car. into the spacesuit <laughs> from the side. <laughs> Ah, that's hilarious. I love that. That's just awesome. But uh, you know, as he was describing that, all I could think about, again, going back to sci-fi is like a first contact, first encounter with, you know, aliens roll up on on our, our lunar module. And they're like, why are these people just like hanging off the side of their house? Like, what kind of weird people are these earthlings? Yeah. And, you know, I think my my aha moment in in this 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 episode today when, when we were talking to Dan and I asked the question, you know, when the office is closed, do you ever go just walk around in a spacesuit, you know? And I can imagine I'm the guy that hops in the spacesuit, clicks down the helmet, and, <laughs> and runs out of oxygen. Out. <laughs> it passes out. out. <laughs> Hopefully it wouldn't die. Yeah. But I never thought about that before. I just I it just never occurred to me, but it absolutely makes sense. I guess I just thought as soon as you pull on the helmet, click and the oxygen's on. But air starts flowing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Air starts flowing. But I can imagine you jump in there and you pass out. <laughs> uh yeah, no, um a uh, new version of a hot box, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And you know. The, the technology with the suits, it's got to keep evolving. You know, things are moving so fast with clips, with human spaceflight becoming commercial. You know, and they're, some of the commercial companies are trying to inject a little more style into the suits, but I think you sacrifice a lot of functionality, i.e. life support, to get there. And, you know, maybe eventually we'll be able to get to those spacesuits that are a little more reminiscent of the movies that we've watched and the imagination that we have. And it's got to get there. But functionality, going back to the moon, going to Mars, you know, the last thing you want failing is your spacesuit. But I do think what we saw on For All Mankind with the duct tape spacesuits, <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that at least the Russians have a roll of duct tape ready to go. <laughs> just, just in case. case, just in case. Patch a hole, my friend, patch a hole. And you know, 64 different sizes of gloves. You know, I hope they have a God, real 64. Yeah. I hope they have a really good Sharpie to put your name on the inside. So you don't mix your gloves up with somebody else. Oh yeah, for sure. But it's amazing how many things you have to accommodate and you need to be thinking about when working in space today. I think we tend to fall into the category of the easy button thinking, okay, the man that founded Amazon 
you know, delivering packages to your door is now flying in space. Elon Musk, PayPal, and launching rockets, building the biggest rocket ever made, that we're making it look so easy that we forget about the sophistication behind all of this. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. And, and I think one of the other, you know, pieces, you know, thinking of the Falcon and a lot of the pain that that Elon Musk went through in talking to Dan, I mean, having that legacy and a lot of the lessons learned from Apollo and, and before is going to help them in, in going forward. And, you know, I think it's one of the things that, that new space always needs to keep in mind that, Hey, there's a lot of lessons learned from old space and don't, don't throw all of those aside. Yeah, for sure. Use it as a learning experience. Mm-hmm. I was thrilled to have Dan on today. It was a great show, entertaining, got to nerd out a little bit on spacesuits and, can't wait to see where they go. And, you know, it's uh, it's amazing that someone can come on a show and make spacesuits interesting. But it was great. It was great. This is Clint. This is Andrew. We'll hear you next time. Missing you, Chad. Can't wait till you're back. Have a great vacation. Enjoy your time. Enjoy your summer. All right. See you next time on Space and 60. Next time on Space and 60. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Space and 60. Stay tuned as we explore new journeys into space with our upcoming guests and talk about the evolution of the industry. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. And we would love your input and feedback. So send us your comments and questions, and we'll try to feature them in a future podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode of Space and 60, where new space speaks. Space and 60.